Hello everyone and welcome to That Was Genius. This is a funny history podcast by Tom Berry and Sam Datter, exploring little-known stories and corners of the past. We'll get to the history shortly, but first, a couple of minutes of what we ominously call, quote, witty banter, highlights of our pre-recording chat, which usually ends up being mostly toilet humour. There's a treat. can't believe I managed to find a gif of uh, phone sex to send to you. <laughs> Hold on, let's have a look. I don't think I saw that. Uh, let's have a look. Oh dear. <laughs> He's hairy, isn't he's a very, he? It's a very hairy man. It's a very hairy Australian, yes, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> Blatantly, the person that picks up the call doesn't doesn't look like him. <laughs> no, he's just a man with a, as, as a man with a sexy voice, and I should know. <laughs> as a man with a sexy voice, I know that that's what other people imagine when I pick up the phone. <laughs> they, <laughs> they. They imagine that you're sexier than you are. Is this what you're saying? Yes, they imagine because that I'm your sexy an oiled-up Australian man with a hairy chest, um, wearing nothing but an open open vest. I don't. But then I have met you. You before. have met me. Yes, I've been to your wedding, and that wasn't what I looked like at all. <laughs> <laughs> the snag do, on the other hand, had you had you looked like that, I would have turned you away. <laughs> had I looked like that, you wouldn't have turned me down. <laughs> well, the wedding would have all been over. It, it? it would before it started. Before yes. it even yeah. started, yeah. Has anyone got any objections? Yeah, I have an objection. I didn't realise Sam was so goddamn hot. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing's over, sister. <laughs> I'd say, as as the vicar, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> but thank you. Now, can we carry on with the ceremony? <laughs> Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the little history podcast in which Tom... Hello. ...and Sam, hello, discuss history stories on a theme each week. What's our topic this week, Tom? Um, oh, I, don't, I was just looking at all my blue wiggly lines. Rivalries! It is rivalries. It feels like a familiar one, this one. I don't know why, because we haven't done rivalries, oh, but okay. like we have. How did you find the research for this one? Uh, easy, easy peasy. Oh, um, I had enough. to go with one of my early avenues... You know, I, I didn't have enough time to faff around because I started my research quite late. But no, I, I was straight onto something and I was quite pleased as well because it's very historical. Oh, love it. And I, I've learnt something. I haven't just found a source that's silly. I've actually learnt something this week. And I do hope our listeners will learn something too, Sam. We'll all go away from this wiser, better prepared to take on life and everything that it throws at us. Doubtful. Uh, <laughs> well, not you. You're going to die early. Yeah. Well. Um. <laughs> so I, I cover, of all the bits that are, we're going back to from our pre-podcast chat, the death of my father, the premature death of my father is the one that's going to have to make the cut because I can't edit it out from the rest of the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, for once, Sam, I'm happy to help you to avoid you having to have that in the final recording because I feel quite guilty for bringing up the topic. No. <laughs> no, I want everyone in the audience to know what our dynamic is. <laughs> it's very rare for me to feel guilty about something I've Incredibly said. Incredibly rare. <laughs> but I, I have my threshold. <laughs> good to know. Good to know you've got standards. Took us a while to reach that limit, but we did. And it turns out, <laughs> we got that after turns out my dead dad's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's also the fact that I'm winding you up for possibly having a lower life expectancy than me. The irony is, 
this episode is going to go out on the 11th anniversary of his death. So, hi, Dad, if you're listening. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, there we go. Um, oh, dear Lord. Should we talk about your hemorrhoids instead? <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> the only thing that could make me more uncomfortable than this conversation. <laughs> I'm not uncomfortable talking start? about it, just the physical discomfort involved in having him. Right. Genuinely, genuinely, do you want to, do you want to redo anything? <laughs> no. Are you sure? Yes. Audience, okay. we're usually more cheerful than this. <laughs> I've had a really nice day. <laughs> so have I, <laughs> till now. I, I struggled a bit this week, Tom. I had a really I had a really good one and I wanted to I wanted to talk about it. I've got it as an honourable mention still. It's quite well known as an event, but the history of it and some of the stories behind it are just insane. And uh, and I wanted to talk about it, but I couldn't find a proper source, no. a proper historian like detailing any of the outlandish claims that have been made about it. I've had that a few times. I've tripped over when I've actually decided to do some due diligence and check <laughs> whether or not, it's, whether or not what I've read is online is actually true. <laughs> yeah, the best policy is to not do any due diligence. Just openly say, I've read well, this online. Might be nonsense. <laughs> yes, someone said it in a forum. <laughs> It must be right. Yeah, I think I was just looking for names. All I wanted was some names. Who just put... made them up? What what era are we talking? Uh, <laughs> Any time from about 1300 AD to today. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then you've got pre- you could have chosen any name, mm. and everyone would have believed you. Yes, uh, and it's in Italy as well, so I could have just gone with Giovanni Margherita. Yeah, yeah, or Paolo Piaggio. Yes, indeed. <laughs> or even maybe Vidi Vespa. Yeah, or Tony Soprano, Dino Donatello, <laughs> Dino Donna Kebabo, <laughs> uh, but Paulie, yeah, Paulie Pizzeria, nice. <laughs> Ooh, Paulie Pizzeria. That's not that's not a yeah. pizzeria you want to shop, at, is it? <laughs> yeah, one with a green pizza. <laughs> the pizzeria on a cruise ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The buffet pizzeria on a <laughs> on a cruise of the Bahamas. And you're behind someone who coughs all over it in the queue. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's your turn to go first this week, unless you've got any audience feedback. Uh, there's only one piece of audience feedback, really. That was from the mighty Jalapino on Podbean, who wrote, Oh, fucking hey, bye's. Um, uh, is he from Jamaica? I'm pretty I, well, sure he's Canadian. <laughs> or if you replace buys with bro... That sounds very much like a New Zealander. Oh, fucking hey, bro. Um, but I think it was a positive thing because he liked the episode that he was commenting on. Um, yes, yeah, so that's all we have, really. There's a few other messages that we've had on uh, Patreon. Charlie liked a bit of our Alf Weeders and Pet Banter as well. So she's on that. Anyway, um, so I'm going to talk about a period in British history today that is most definitely proper history and most definitely a great rivalry. Fits Ooh. the bill. The War of the Roses. Oh, hello. Have you heard of that, Sam? I believe it was the inspiration for the great historical epic Game of Thrones, wasn't it? I think it certainly was, Sam. Although, when you watch Game of Thrones, you realise he's been influenced by... Uh, I forgot the, guy, the guy's name, the author. was influenced by many periods of history. George R.R. R. Martin. George R.R. R. Martin. Yes. R. Uh, yes, it was most definitely a strong influence on Game of Thrones. And of course, everyone knows about the War of the Roses. I was only joking when I was um, asking if you knew about it. Yes, the um, classic the battle famous. between them and Quality Street. Oh, which one will you choose? Oh, Roses exactly. all the way. But, you know, you go back, Sam, to the to the late 90s, and it was, it was very much a two-way 
street, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it, it was Christmas. part of the north-south divide. If you were northern, you had Quality Street associated inevitably, right? obviously, with Coronation Street, the soap opera. Right. And if you were down south in one of those posh ponces, you had uh, Cadbury's Roses, because you could have... Roses for ponces, Quality Streets for Coronation Street. <laughs> yes. As the classic song goes, sung by... Uh, Sung by greasy-haired waiters in Greek restaurants the world over. <laughs> a rose for the ponce. <laughs> a ponce for the rose. <laughs> why is this? Why is this Greek, greasy-haired Greek waiter um, sound like a Brit- an English leper from the Middle Ages? So- <laughs> <laughs> because, well, yes, fair enough. <laughs> Um, anyway, yes, uh, the War of the Roses. So, a period in English history between 1455 and 1487, when, and, you know, I, I'm going to have to go over it, but a lot of us will know what we're talking about when it comes to the War of the Roses, when the House of Lancaster and the House of York, both with claimants to the British throne, smashed each other up right proper, so Oof. much so that all the decent claimants to the throne were killed. Towards the end, the two houses were so beaten up that they were putting forward people like Barry the Cobbler, who once fixed Henry VI's shoes and thus had a better claim to the English throne than Pierre Pompelmousse, who the House <laughs> of York were throwing their weight behind because he was a fifth cousin of Edward IV, thrice removed on the maternal <laughs> side of his paternal great-auntie's favourite horse. <laughs> that was quite a mouthful. It was, as was I his aunt. I, <laughs> I think I threw myself with Pompelmousse. <laughs> as, according to several bits of medieval marginalia, was his auntie's horse. <laughs> anyway. Um, the, the, a, giant, a giant knob in the corner of the Bible. <laughs> Plenty of those. <laughs> um, front, front and centre, buddy. <laughs> Pompelmousse being grapefruit in French. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. I always okay. get confused between that and hedgehog. Yeah, because I typed in Pompelmousse thinking it was hedgehog yeah. and discovered there that it you wasn't. Go. It's something completely different. Le Hodge Egg. Yes. Um, the Wars of the Roses Thanks for a very confusing when... breakfast. And... <laughs> no, I'm fairly sure I didn't order this. <laughs> He's not even dead. He's walking around the plate. Um, I'm on a diet. He's lapping up my milk. <laughs> yes. um... Literally drinking the milk out of my granola. <laughs> Carry on, this is bizarre, and we're nearly half an hour into the recording. <laughs> So the Wars of the Roses ended uh, when Henry Tudor jumped in right at the end, pinching victory, much like a child in the playground who's just, just watched a massive fight over a game of pogs, waits until every other child has been put in detention by a teacher all wedgied from a coat peg, and then strolls across to the pile of pogs and pops them all in his pocket. Oh, that bastard. Henry becomes Henry VII. He does a good job of uniting the two houses of Lancaster and New York, you know, Tudor Rose and all that, and the Plantagenet kings make way for the Tudor regents. Plantagenet. Mm, it's a nice word, though, isn't it? It is. Very satisfying. Mm. She did not be Plantagenet. Uh, possibly. Plantagenet. Uh, Plantagenet for le bez et Tudor. But Tudor, sir. In all seriousness, it's uh, it's a complicated 32 years, I'll be honest with you, with powerful notes. Very, very complicated period very. in history. There's, there's a lot of shifting allegiances, claimants to the throne dying in battle, more powerful nobles getting arsy because they feel they're not being treated well enough, kings being restored, kings being captured, claimants being murdered, and so on. Also, lots of Edwards and Richards dying and then taking centre stage. You've yes. got to be good at distinguishing your dicks from your teddies. You, you have, yes. <laughs> Let's try and summarise it There's an awful lot of bloody dicks and bloody teddies after. There is. Very battered dicks. 
It's just rude. Really, Idea. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and? <laughs> it's never stopped us before. Yes. I take your point and bat it back. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm now going to try and summarise The War of the Roses. I kind of already have done a little bit of a summary, but I'm going to try and summarise them in as in as little detail as possible, and it's still going to be Wonderful. pretty complicated. But this is the historical. <laughs> Dan Carlin, <bit>. listen up. <laughs> this is this, this is the historical bit. Okay, so pay attention, listeners. King Henry V of England dies in 1422. Hold on. This sounds like a rhyme. Hold on. I thought I deleted that bit. <laughs> Hold on. I All really right. don't know. Well, that... I deleted that bit because I tried to make it more concise. That's revisionist fucking history for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, no, no, do it again because I think you can make a song out of that. King Henry V of England dies in 1422. No, it doesn't rush. King, <laughs> <laughs> King Henry V of England died in 1422. Uh, the dumb little fucker got killed in battle. <laughs> While he was having a poo. <laughs> Yay! He got caught short <laughs> on his horse. <laughs> he, says, hey, he got caught sh- got caught short by the House of York, <laughs> who speared him up the bum. <laughs> I was, I was going to go for and took a shit in a tree. Um, anyway, you can go either way. As it turns out, it wasn't a very good place to be. He got killed by a spear up the bum. The dirty little shitting from a tree, Lancastrian. Oh, for listeners, um, I mentioned a moment ago that I was going to try and do something historical. That was not historically accurate, King. No one King was Henry killed shitting in a tree. <laughs> did not get killed shitting in a tree. Uh, so I'm just going to delete that whole paragraph. I thought I'd delete that earlier because I, I, I tried to um, make it more concise. So delete. Let's skip forward to Henry VI. So Henry VI was, the ra- was a rather lame king. We do a really good job of pretending that this podcast is spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like me. Oh, yes, Sam, that was a good joke. Uh, <clears throat> let me scroll down to some of the funny things I wrote earlier today. Let me open my .txt document of funny things to say. <laughs> things that I think might be witty and spontaneous. <laughs> Henry the Sixth was rather a rather a rather ra- was rather a rather lame king who struggled <laughs> to control his nobles. God, what has happened to your notes? It's very, very spontaneous. Are you still drunk when you woke up at 6am to write this? <laughs> Henry VI was a rather lame king who struggled to control his nobles and had a very assertive wife in Margaret of Anjou. During his reign, the French snatched all English possessions on the continent, barring Calais, because this is at the end of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. Incidentally, Henry VI is the only English monarch to be crowned King of France, although this is always disputed and conclusively lost at the end of the Hundred Years' War. Think Joan of Arc and all that jazz turning the tide. Henry VI also experienced bouts of bonkersness. Syphilitic or... I don't know, actually. Something something less blameful. But syphilis did cross my mind. Not not literally, but it, it did cross my mind. Um, it's all just inbred bonkersness. Uh, there are well, various not? ways that British monarchs have traditionally gone nuts, aren't there? Yes. Um, the two main ones are incest and syphilis, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those those famous sisters. <laughs> Queen incest and Queen syphilis. <laughs> yes. Two of the regents of the House of Tudor. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so, so the first was in 1453, which was one of the final triggers for the War of the Roses. Behind him, his wife Margaret of Anjou fought with the powerful noble Richard of York, who had become Lord Protector during Henry's illness. Note, this Richard of York is Richard the, is not Richard III of York, who is his son. Um, Henry VI and Margaret of Lancastrians, Richard of York, this one we're talking about now, is a Yorkist. Not to be confused with a Yorkie, which is browner and far more chocolatey. And not for women. Apparently, <laughs> according to marketing company. Microsoft Word wishes me to use uh, to write chocolatier instead of more chocolatey, but I think more chocolatey sounds better than chocolatier. Uh, I, I will go with you. Chocolatier is quite a mouthful, although that's not necessarily a bad thing when referring fuck to chocolate. Yes, fuck the paperclip. Put that on a sign, Sam, and walk down your street with it. Fuck yeah. the paperclip. Um, <laughs> eight years later, in 1461, one of Richard the York's sons becomes Edward IV when Henry VI is disposed. Christ almighty. Deposed. I know, it's confusing. I haven't barely started. Is deposed, Richard of York dying a year earlier. Henry is put in the Tower of London and Margaret now takes up his cause. Henry is restored to the throne in 1470 after a powerful noble, the Earl of Warwick, gets fed up with Edward IV and switches allegiances. The four- in 1471, Edward retakes power, imprisons Henry again. So Henry's not having a very good time during the latter part of his reign. He's either bonkers or being imprisoned. Um, I See, I know about this history, and it's still bloody confusing. It is very confusing. Um, Edward retakes power, kills um, Henry's heir, Edmund of Westminster. Henry soon dies in prison. Edward IV reigns until 1483. His son becomes Edward V, but is only 12. Richard son of Richard of York, so this is Richard of York, son of Richard of York, grabs the throne and becomes <laughs> Richard III. This this is the nasty man that locks Edward V away in the Tower of London with his brother Richard. Um, Richard III's justification for this is that they were illegitimate because Edward IV had a secret marriage prior to marrying the lady who he had these children with. It is This is the simple version. Um, these Eesh. are the... Fa- so yeah, these are the famous children who disappear, probably murdered, and whose bones were supposedly found in a box a few hundred years later in the Tower of London. Um, the nobles aren't happy about Richard III and his behaviour. Many of them switch sides and then support Henry Tudor. War of the Roses gets an injection of energy. Henry IV's half-brother... Uh, sorry, Henry Tudor is, is Henry IV's half-brother's son, so he hasn't got the strongest claim. Anyway, he invades from the continent. Everyone else is dead. Um, he invades <laughs> from the continent, defeats Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth, and there ends the War of the Roses. Whew, okay. <sniffs> right. Okay. Take a drink. Um, does, is that all crystal clear? No, uh, but it, in that sense, it's accurate. Perfect, perfectly accurate, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well told. <laughs> um, now to focus on a few of the sillier and quite interesting side stories from the War of the Roses. Actually, a couple of things that bookmarked or bookended the, uh, the Wars of the Roses. Um, I joked at the start about how dodgy the claimants to the throne became because everyone was dying. Well, a couple of false pretenders to the English throne were put forward just after the Wars of the Roses ended. One was a chap called Lambert Simnel, so named because he was full fruity with a hint of almonds. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for. Yes. <laughs> um, um, and, um, in 1487, Simnel pretended to be Edward Plantagenet. Earl Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, who had a distant claim to the English throne and was actually still alive, so he was pretending to be a, a noble who was still alive. Simnel was of common birth and for some reason was picked up at the age of 10 by priests. This is a very weird story. Who decided. Uh, so far, not that well, weird. Well, that's not weird. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's fairly standard. Um, 
And this priest decided to educate Simnel as a, as, a, as a king in the hope that one day he would become king. Originally, this priest thought that he'd pretend that Simnel was the child Richard, the one that had been imprisoned alongside his brother Edward V in the Tower of London, claiming that he'd escaped. Uh, the priest then heard rumour that Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, had died in the Tower of London, which wasn't true, and so decided to pretend that Lambent Simnel was he. Is it any getting clearer? This? Nope. <laughs> nope, anyway. Um, so uh, some nobles decide to grab hold of this opportunity uh, to rebel again and invade England with Irish and Flemish troops. Um, <laughs> on dribbling lives. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Big aura, big aura, big aura. <laughs> How, where are you from then? <laughs> are you Irish, Ryan? Yes. We're the Flemish troops. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Led by Earl Jonathan Woff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, his, uh, and his friend Jamie Oliver. <laughs> who cooks all the meals. You know, the Flemish troops. <laughs> yes. Um, he t- he does the catering. <laughs> <laughs> um, very ethical. Only yes. three range chickens and yes. happy pigs. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. <laughs> Sorry, are you going to carry on? <laughs> no. I was trying to think of the other ethical uh, ethical television chef. Um, and all I could think of was Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. No. Um, his double-barrelled name, what's it called? And Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, yes. He does sound like he could have been in the Wars of the Roses. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, Duke he of does. Westminster. Or something. Yes. Anyway, um, interestingly, Simnel was pardoned due to only being 10 and clearly a, a, a puppet. I, I have in my notes clearly a puppet. He wasn't actually a puppet. <laughs> and being a cake. <laughs> he, was cleared, cake. he was cleared <laughs> on account of the fact that he was a baked good and legally a baked good cannot <laughs> cannot rule the country does, does not yeah. or be or be hung drawn and quartered it does not well it can be it, it, to be it fair can be it can be quartered <laughs> <laughs> and it can be eaten yes but... you should no, be you should be quartered, quartered eaten and wrapped up in cling and tinfoil <laughs> left to go slightly dry <laughs> Open not this. No. Anyway, talking of food, um, he ended up spending the rest of his life working in court as a cook and a falconer later on. So he did quite well at it. He was probably quite chuffed. He'd had a lovely adventure. He'd been educated for free by a weird priest. He'd been at the head of an army that fought in a real-life battle. He'd been crowned King of England in Dublin. And now he he was having a good life in the king's kitchen. I mean, that's, that's he's done well, isn't he? I mean, from king to cook of the king is a bit of a step down, but... We're talking the later Middle Ages, Sam. I, I would have taken that. <laughs> it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then there was another pretender and th- that was around the same time. This was a chap called Perkin Warbeck, who claimed to be Richard, the aforementioned child who was locked in the Tower of London. Perkin Warbeck was born and brought up in the Low Countries, where in his mid-teens he became a merchant. He seemed to bear a striking resemblance to Richard and began to claim to be him. He moved to Ireland at the age of 17 and once in Cork was taken on board by some Yorkists who decided to put him up as the heir of the English throne, like you do. Hey, there's someone hey. who looks like a king. 
You we're, could be the king. We're pretty desperate. We're running out of contenders. <laughs> yeah. We've literally got stupid Bill and the town cat. <laughs> and in, his, in fairness to stupid Bill, he is inbred. But <laughs> he's completely witless. No, in fairness to him, he's he's completely witless too. He's yes. inbred and witless. He's got that going for him. <laughs> yes, he's got yes, that's in his favour when it comes to being a king of England. <laughs> but the problem seems to be um, he's ugly. Yeah, you want to look like Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you want <laughs> yes, Henry. He's got a he's got a good stance, Henry VIII, hasn't he? I was looking at the kings. Does all the portraits are very dull up to Henry VIII, and then Henry VIII says, "You know what, boys? Take it away from my face. Focus in on the codpiece. Make the codpiece <laughs> the centre of this portrait." Yes, less on the nose, more on the dick. <laughs> <laughs> No, Can not Richard. Think? No, my dick. <laughs> yes, yes. We don't like Richard. No, less yeah? of a less of a Richard the Third, more of a Richard the Eighth down there, please. <laughs> <laughs> Richard the Eighth inch. Exactly. Yeah, he started making waves in Ireland and on the continent. Richard's auntie publicly declared that he was Richard Perkin Warbeck, and uh, monarchs in Europe called him Duke of York. Basically, rival powers to the English king, both from within and without. Uh, England saw Warbeck as an opportunity to make life very hard for Henry VII. The Scots and the Spanish were involved in Warbeck's first and really rather shit attempt to be crowned King of England when he invaded from Scotland in 1495-96. to um, A year later he attempted again from Cornwall where he mustered an army but was quickly defeated. Um, Henry VII captured Warbeck, made him admit that he was an imposter and then apparently treated him quite well for a while but alas Warbeck was an all-or-nothing type of guy and tried to escape. Um, he, sh- he should have taken a leaf out of Simnel's book and just accepted his fate because it, not long after this, he was uh, he was locked in the Tower of London alongside Edward Plantagenet. Plant- to be Plantagenet. fair, I mean, that's high-class place to be locked up. It is. It's very central in London, isn't it? Good views. Again, could have been worse. A very good, very good postcode. And actually, to be fair, the Tower of London was really only for very respected... <laughs> Yeah, Tre- yeah. You know, the, the guy. The, these were the treasoners that were going to be um, politely treated on the day they were going to be hung, born. Yeah, consi- considering he was literally a nobody. Yeah, yeah. I think he's done actually very well. I think yeah. hung, hang, hanging, drawing, and quartering was too good for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't actually think he got hung, drawn, and quartered. Anyway, now the following episode I, I do find quite amusing because, as I say, he gets imprisoned in the Tower of London alongside Edward Plantagenet. Um, why do I keep saying that word? Edward Plantagenet. Fuck me. I'm stuck between doing it in Plantagenet in the jokey French way and the proper way. Um, <laughs> so this Edward Plantagenet, the guy that Simnel was impersonating. So we have an impersonator alongside an impersonated. And I think it would have gone a little bit like oh. this. You, you, you look awfully like a chap I used to know called Simnel. It's funny you mention that. You look a lot like the chap Warbeck. I am Warbeck, but I thought you were Richard. No, no, no. I'm pretending to be Richard, just like you were pretending to be Edward. I wasn't pretending to be Edward. I am Edward. So where's Simnel then? Oh, he's down in the kitchens. Well, what about Richard? Oh, he's dead. His bones are in the little box under the stairs. The two of them... Which which Richard was that? <laughs> yeah, was... The, the, the second, the third, the third, the third, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. It was Richard of York. Oh, that makes it a lot clearer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it helps that there were Richards on the Yorkist side and Edwards on the Yorkist side, and there were also Richard and Edwards on the... Lancastrian side, if I remember correctly, which also sort of threw me slightly. Um, very inconvenient. Very rude, actually, I would say. 
Um, so yeah, and the two of them actually made an escape attempt. There was another interesting figure, this is my last little thing, and this is uh, at the start, well prior to the Wars of the Roses, a chap called Jack Cade led a rebellion in 1450, and although this is before the wars, this rebellion was one of the many triggers for the wars, and this was a popular uprising, but unlike the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which was, that's only 70 years before it was not a revolt of common people you know the type of people who rent a flat above a shop cut the hair and get a job smoke some fags and play some pool pretend they never went to school no 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 this was a middle class rebellion these were people with a thirst for knowledge studying sculpture at St Martin's College <laughs> the middle class that was, that... <laughs> explain that for the audience <laughs> they know the song <laughs> there are Americans there will there will be people out there who do not know pulp <laughs> All right, well, Jarvis Cocker, who who got up on stage when Michael Jackson was performing at a BAFTAs back in what must have been the late 90s and showed his ass um, as protest against the accusations that Michael Jackson was a paedophile. Completely unfounded, because as it turns out, he was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Jarvis Cocker, and that's, that's uh, lyrics to the song Common People, which is, when you listen to it lyrically, a very, very condescending song. <laughs> Yes, well, very, very, very melodic, um, and I do enjoy, I do like the song, but it's lyrically not so strong. Um, anyway, the middle classes involved in this rebellion were complaining about judicial failures and inequalities, corruption and rigged elections, not economic repression like the peasants had done seventy years before. Those involved in the peasant revolt wanted cheaper football tickets, a Greg's on every high street, and an end to the tracksuit tax. Those involved in the Cade Rebellion wanted avocados that didn't take ages to ripen, organic quinoa at the markets, and wider and better tarmac roads so they didn't have to drive their 4x4s anywhere near mud. <laughs> yes. These middle-class rebels were really rather brutal, which really surprised me, actually, because the middle classes usually prefer to be bastards in more subtle and less easily spotted ways. They just tend to pay, they tend to pay other people to be bastards for. Yeah, or just um, stitch people up in the workplace. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just subtle, subtle country. Is, is generally the middle class way. Anyway, Cade led the rebel- <laughs> rebels to London. Laura Ashley Country. <laughs> Emma Bridgewater Dickishness. Uh, Emma Bridge Wankery. Yeah, oh, nice. Episode title. <laughs> Waitossery. Way, way I don't know. Very good. Uh, anyway, Cade led the rebels to London. Uh, they made a pub, their base of operations, good idea, and then marched across London Bridge. Um, Sounds very much like football supporters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no, you're right, and what follows is not far away from football supporters. The Lord High Treasure was captured, along with his son-in-law. They were both beheaded and had their heads put on spikes. As the heads were paraded through London, those funny rebels decided to push them together to make a little like kissing. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Did that actually happen? That, apparently that genuinely did happen. Oh, wow. Um, nice. Pretty funny, so, to be fair. You would, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> you've, you've already beheaded someone and shoved <laughs> their head on a spike. In for a penny, in for a pound. <laughs> Do that as well, yeah. Yeah, speaking of pounding, that what they did with the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Some looting uh, took place and Cade seemed to lose control of the mob, uh, which turned... Uh, some left. of the turn left, which turned <laughs> some of the nobles that were maybe supportive um, against this this rebellion, and eventually Cade was captured. The re- the rebels were dispersed, and Cade was given the old hang, drawn, and quarter treatment. Oh, um, 
the remains of his body were then displayed around Kent, where the rebellion had begun. Um, incidentally, this form of death for treason, have a guess um, how long ago it stopped British history. When it was phased out of law or when the last person was executed by hanging, drawing and quartering? You can have both. I reckon the last person who was hung, drawn and quartered, 1780s, and I reckon it probably wasn't made illegal until the 1950s. Oh, not far off. Oft quoted, I think there was a Scottish chap, Wil- something Wilkie, um, who was hung, drawn and quartered in, I think, 1790-ish. Oh! But um, there were hanging drawings and quarterings in around the 1820s as well, but I think they were slightly less brutal. I think they were fully hung um, before their and body was... And chopped up afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Rather than being partially hung and then having their gonads cut off in front of them and then having their guts taken out in front of them and then slowly bleeding to death. It's really very <laughs> revolting when you see some of the pictures and the descriptions It's a Channel 4 dating show right there. <laughs> um, and uh, it was um, legally banned, I think, in 1870-ish. There was an act that was passed. Uh. 1998, uh, you could still get killed for treason. Yes, you could for bur- for burning a naval shipyard. Yeah, yeah, I, d- I didn't. So that was up until 1998. And there you have it, Sam. There's my War of the Roses contribution to this week's episode. I hope you found it educational. I did. I found it very confusing. Yeah. I think that we need to go back and rename various people. Yeah. What would be easier <laughs> for you? What names would be easier? It's anything except Edward and Richard. Maybe okay. Maybe maybe Bert, Bert, Terence. Just give everyone a different name. Bert, Terence, Claude, and yeah, Derek, Derek, Trevor. Yes. Um, there were some females involved oh. as well. We could have um, a Dorothy. No, nope. She's Trevor. <laughs> Trevorina. <laughs> yeah. Nope. She's Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Derekina. No. <laughs> no. I mean, highly educational and a rivalry in the sense that it was a war. It was. It, it, fit, it fitted the bill, but it honestly, did. that was that was the best I could do to make it simple, and and I cut out pretty much all the nobles that were involved, <laughs> <laughs> and focused very much on on um, kings and close relations of kings. Um, yeah. And it was still confusing. And it still took forty minutes. <laughs> yeah. In the end. Wow. You're trying to you're trying to uh, you're trying to describe thirty years worth of conniving and plotting. It's going to be complicated, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, good good job in attempting to make it <laughs> attempting to make it understandable. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We might have to make this episode rather back heavy with cock jokes. Uh, pff, I beg your pardon. <laughs> Today, I've I've kind of cheated. I've not got a rivalry as such. Uh, but I do have a manual shame. for how... Shame. 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 That's uh, quote, obviously. Yeah, quote from the yeah. Roses. When Trevorina... Similar was rolled through the town. <laughs> naked. No! <laughs> no, he wasn't marzipan. naked. He had a little paper wrap around the sides. <laughs> spraying raisins everywhere as he was rolled down the steps of York. But first time, an honourable mention... An honourable mention. I, in fact, I had two, but I'm going to cut one out of my script because we're, we're short on time and I might oh, use it later. Oh, go for it. Who gives a shit? Come no, on. No, because I'm going, I'm going to have to edit out later. Um, so, so I'm going to give an honourable mention to the Palio Horse Race in Siena, Italy. <laughs> the Palio Horse Race? Pa- the Palio, not the... 
<laughs> yeah, when everyone just eats the horse and forgets the fucking salad. <laughs> and only vegetables that grow above ground. Yes, only vegetables growing out of the city walls. <laughs> I, I'm not... <laughs> it's paleo, darlings. <laughs> Every three hours, I have some meat. Berry paleo. It's what they used to do back in the, the paleo times. When was the paleo times? Oh, you know, in paleo days. You know, before the... um. The um the the oldie times they were the yes. paleo times yes yeah. yes very very long ago we're all cavemen we all eighty or ninety years oh at least before the second world Minimum. war yes yeah paleo <laughs> paleo uh, no it's the pa- the paleo Tom paleo spelt the same way very different very different meaning although as you'll see Tom uh, there is quite a bit of meat being flung about <laughs> <laughs> I say. Indeed. So twice a year, the city's various contrada or neighbourhoods come together to race around the town square in one of the most extreme and dangerous races going. And I don't just mean horse races, I mean any kind of race. The neighbourhoods are randomly assigned horses by the city and buy in their own jockeys, who, because they are members of these neighbourhoods and have no loyalty to them other than having been hired by them, then proceed to bribe and attack one another to gain an advantage in the actual horse race. Uh, so the, the race takes about 75 seconds. It's three times around the town square, uh, incredibly tight corners, and jutty out bits of medieval architecture. And injuries are very, very, very common. I've been there. Uh, very cobbled as well. It's very, Well, it is cobbled. They do... Um, they turf over the town square for the races. Right. So it's slightly, slightly less deathy than doing it on cobbles. Which is nice of them, I suppose. It's about the only. It's, that's about as far as the animal welfare side of things goes, to be honest. So the jockeys bribe each other. The neighbourhoods, the contrada, bribe each other. <laughs> and this happens, it, it takes an entire year. So the race happens twice a year, both over the summer. And the rest of the year, the contradas fundraise millions of pounds each, which they then use to bribe each other <laughs> to knock their other rivals out of contention. Um, there is actually also a period of open bribery, and the, the great rivalry here is between the neighbourhoods, so each yep. neighbourhood has its arch rival. Before the race starts, there's a period of open bribery in public, <laughs> as a tradition of the race, in which the horse and jockey chosen to lead out the race... So nine of them start on the line and line up, and one gets to go, and is the one who gets to start the race. Everyone gathers around the jockey chosen to start the race and hands them tens of thousands of euros (laughs) to either give them an advantage or to handicap a potential rival. The highest person might say, well, I want all of the neighbourhoods named after owls, uh, named after animals, sorry, not owls, and they'll say... (laughs) How many owls are there? I only <laughs> yes. know a few. I'm I'm the to- the neighbourhood of Tawny, Clive, the neighbourhood of Barnes, uh, Clive <laughs> the owl. Um. Yeah, there is a na- one of the neighbourhoods is called Little Owl. That's why I got confused. And and so say Little Owl uh, is the highest briber <laughs> of the the leading jockey, and they'll say, well, we don't want the we don't want the neighbourhood of She Wolf to win. So start the race when they're looking the other way, or the horse is spooking, and. There'll sometimes be dozens of false starts where the the jockey chosen to leave will charge up to the start rope and then back off at the last minute. And and they'll wait until like the jockey from the team who they've been bribed to beat blinks and then they'll go. And this can take up to two hours. The race, after the official starter's pistol is shot, it can take up to two hours for the race to actually begin. 
because of all the false starts and bribery. Great fun, Mr. Spectator. Absolutely. Well, everyone's just getting drunk and fighting whilst this is happening. (laughs) 10,000 people have crowded the square and they're all just getting absolutely battered and kicking the shit out of their neighbouring neighbourhood. Um... (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, once the race starts, the jockeys use whips, and here's where the meat starts to fly, Tom. The jockeys use whips made of bull's knobs. <laughs> bull's knobs. Yes. Of course they do. Absolutely. Why not? Uh, which they use both on the horses and on each other. And there are basically no rules. Oh, it is totally don't. okay. <laughs> don't. Oh, no. stop, stop smacking me in the face with that giant 12-inch bull's oh, knob. Who paid you those tens of thousands of euros to keep whipping me in the face with a bull's knob? <laughs> it, oh. was, it was me, Matt Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about the COVID restrictions. Come as close <laughs> as you like. <laughs> That's all right, because you've got a particularly well-hung bull. <laughs> Easily two metres. <laughs> so... It is totally okay in this race to pull a rival off their horse, uh, or pull a rival off, uh, or body slam them into a medieval stone wall. Body in fact, slam. Body slam. In fact, there was genuine uproar. There was a near riot a few years back, I want to say in 2016, after a rider was charged with assault in the race for throwing a competitor off their horse. The uproar, Tom, was not because the jockey did it. That was fine. That was part of the event. The uproar and the near riot happened outside the police station because he was charged for what amounted to, in the eyes of this CNE's population, entirely sporting behaviour. Yeah, perfectly legitimate behaviour, yeah. They threw a riot because a guy was charged with pulling a guy off his horse. (laughs) Totally did it, by the way. He absolutely did it. Um, So anyway, I was going to do some of the historic stories of the Palio. Uh, Some of the more open and extreme bribery, uh, quite a few cases of kidnapping and even forced marriages around this horse race. What, in that but two I, hours before it actually starts? Forced uh, marriages? Yeah, all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on. I'd give you my wife. There are stories of people being paid to lose the race by being offered people's daughters' <laughs> hands in marriages. Oh, right. So, I, okay. So, I, I was fairly close. So, yes, right. exactly that. Uh, but I couldn't, for the life of me, find any sources for any of these taller, more extreme tales. Yeah, the pride of your uh, neighbourhood is more important than you. <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to marry the jockey. Hmm? He's fully good <laughs> in the neighbourhood. Oh, but Papa, he is very small. Why, why is she French? <laughs> <laughs> he is very small and Irish. No, no, no that, is still, <laughs> that is still French. Hello there. What? <laughs> It's a lucky that the race is only 75 seconds because I can't be out much longer in the Italian sunshine <laughs> without literally turning to a crisp. <laughs> um, interestingly, the Palio is one of the only horse races in the, in the, in the world where the jockey doesn't need to finish. It's the, horse that, it's the horse that's racing. It's the horse that wins. <laughs> I like the thought of that. So there's been more than one occasion. There's also where the horse, horse who's held in high esteem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is about me, not you. Right. Where the horses rode a jockey who's been on a turtle. <laughs> the horses ride a turtle. The horses rode a jockey and the jockey's riding the turtle. <laughs> got you, got you. What's a turtle riding? We're getting very um, Terry Pratchett here, aren't we? Here we are, yes. <laughs> anyway, I have kept, that was my honourable mention, I have kept on the topic of sporting rivalries. Sorry, I only 20 minutes, that was fun. I know, right? I, well, I tried to keep it short, but someone kept on talking. And it was me. <laughs> I have kept it on sporting rivalries and I've come across a genius 
book, Tom, a masterpiece in underhand but not illegal sporting activity. Harry Redknapp's guy. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't rivalry. This is how to defeat your rivals, Tom. And as you're someone who's a sport, you're a sporting man, Tom. You believe in fair play. I know this. Oh, yeah, I know this about you. Do, yeah. This is going to make your fucking blood boil. <laughs> <laughs> this is the manual of how every single granddad annoys you as a kid and essentially beats you at every game you play every single time. <laughs> well, I am going to be able to hear your it. teeth grinding. My granddad did it by playing hundreds of thousands of games of drafts during the Second World War in RAF bases. That's how he always <laughs> beat us at drafts. <laughs> Shed loads consider- of experience. <laughs> We were considering playing a game that wasn't around in World War Two bases. <laughs> he did. He played drafts all across North Africa. War is hell, Tom. War is hell. <laughs> so behold, Tom, the uh, the book known as Theory and Practice of Gamesmanship, aka the Art of Winning Games Without Actually Cheating, a nineteen forty seven book by British journalist and satirist Stephen Potter. This is a literal manual of how to be a bastard at sport. (laughs) And it is brilliant, Tom. It's not the origin of psychological warfare in sporting terms because people have been psyching each other out for millennia, but I'm pretty sure it's the first codified manual (laughs) for sporting psychological warfare. It is the yin to sportsmanship's yang. It is winning whatever the cost and... This book, Tom, has directly led to rule changes in almost every professional sport. Is this guy just teaching people how to get into the opposition's head? Yes, that is exactly what it is. It's also popular enough and sold enough copies that Potter was able to retire from his job as a BBC journalist by the early 1950s and dedicate the rest of his life to writing for pleasure. So he made a fortune out of this book. It is incredibly popular in the UK. Uh, largely forgotten now, but in the, in the 1940s and 1950s, this was the Bible for getting by. The idea for the book and the theory around it came about during a doubles tennis match between Potter and the philosopher C.E.M. Joad and two younger and fitter men who were very clearly winning. In response, Joad walloped the ball so hard when returning a serve that it hit the back wall of the court several metres over the line. Whilst the returning opponents were preparing for their next serve, Joad called across the net politely and quite charmingly, uh, Kindly state, please, dear boys, whether the ball was in or out. Despite it being literally impossible for it to be any more clearly out of play. But, being young and polite, the opponents offered to replay the point. (laughs) Just out of good manners and sportsmanship. Joad declined, but the young men were so put off by the ludicrous suggestion that they were somehow cheating (laughs) by just ignoring a ball that could possibly have been in, that they completely threw their game and lost. Potter saw this and thought, fuck me, this is genius. This is, that's very common in tennis. It's incredibly easy to be a bastard. Yeah, that's really common in tennis. I I remember playing, it was Greg Rosetsky, the English player, used to deliberately do that funny trick where he, he would, the momentum would be with the opposition. And so he'd be like, oh, I'm playing badly. He'd give his racket to a ball boy and let the ball boy come and play a few games. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, get involved in a rally. And the, op- the opponent was obviously, oh, I've got to play along with this because the crowd are going to boo me if I don't. And Greg Rosetsky got a breather and upset the opposition's yeah. rhythm. That, Tom, is absolutely from the manual. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason why you're not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> this is what I mean. This kind of cuntish behaviour... <laughs> 
and just annoying your opponent into submission has genuinely changed rules in almost every professional sport. Now, it should be noted, Tom, that firstly, this book was written as a joke. The whole book was a satirical look at self-help books of the time, much like the ones we get today. Uh, Nothing has changed in the last 70 years. It's also worth noting, well, 80 years now, it's also worth noting that Potter fully acknowledged that the book was basically just there to gain an advantage or annoy your opponents. It is not a manual for winning. Here's a quote from the book. The way of the gamesman is hard, his training strict, his progress slow, his disappointments many. As a result, the assiduous student of gamesmanship has little time for the minutiae of the game itself, little opportunity for learning how to play the shots, for instance. <laughs> so basically, this is teaching you how to be shit at a sport. <laughs> but still win. But still win. <laughs> Do you want to cut corners? <laughs> yes. Have you tried steroids? <laughs> 10,000 hours, my ass. <laughs> yes. Have you tried six hours? And plenty of dope. And a joke textbook. <laughs> he later admits, though, further down in the book, that, uh, quote, There is no doubt that a knowledge of the game itself does sometimes help the gamesman. <laughs> <laughs> but not always. <laughs> so there are three basic rules outlined in gamesmanship. Rule number one, breaking the flow of an opponent's play. Essentially, Greg Rosetsky. Rule number two, causing an opponent to take the game less seriously, Greg Rosetsky. (laughs) Number three, intentionally making a quote-unquote mistake which gains an advantage over an opponent. Breaking the flow is a relatively easy one, and it's by far the most important. Not if you've got bladder problems. Uh, Well, that breaks the flow. (laughs) That does a job. (laughs) So breaking a flow is is the easiest and most important one by far. By far. Did you what you have to do, Tom? Mistake. I did say fart by mistake, yes. <laughs> it's a Freudian fart. Again, again, it would also put your opponent off their stride. <laughs> a Freudian fart would. Yeah. <laughs> a, Freud, a Freudian fart. A fart with images of shagging its mother. <laughs> the, the Oedipus shart. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Schrodinger's shart. You're not quite sure if it's there until you've inspected inspected the nappy <laughs> the, the, the baby's poo that both exists and does not exist <laughs> so breaking the flow is a really easy one and it's the most important put your rival off their stride potter suggests for example coming out to bat in a game of cricket with two left gloves and having to walk off to sort out the oh, problem classic Just, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah very very well yeah. known all with clown's shoes on oh yeah, yeah. Or blindfolded. Or, or just facing backwards. Or with a bat made out of jelly. This is wobbling oh, yes. everywhere. <laughs> what have I done? Oh, I've picked up the wrong bat, haven't I? Wobble, wobble, wobble. Oh, hey. shit. Oh, I can't play cricket oh, with this. Oh, Christ. Be a sport, would you, and let me go change this? But, you know, it can be something as simple as, like, three, four minutes sport will put the bowler off their stride. Mm. They'll be out of their flow and, and, and their game will notably decrease. It's, it's, a, it's a classic move. In snooker, an area where Potter was an absolute master at being an absolute masturbator, hence the name, he proposed intentionally standing in the opponent's line of sight and then suddenly moving when the opponent was about to shoot <laughs> under the guise of getting out of their line of sight. Oh, I'm not supposed to be here. Just hands. <laughs> oh, sorry. Am I in your way? <laughs> Let me just moonwalk out of your line of sight. 
So, quote, more or less at the last moment, leap into the correct position with exaggerated agility and stand rigidly with head bowed. <laughs> Whoops, don't mind me. <laughs> Uh, another snooker tip. That's still occasion. I've, you still see that occasionally in snooker games. One of the players will be complaining. It, it, it's a, about the other player. Yeah, and it is actually illegal in snooker. It's been banned. Quite recently, there was an incident of farting in a. Snooker there was match. yes. <laughs> you saw this as well. It was, kind of, it was maybe within the last year at a high. Maybe it was one of the world championships or something. A member I of the crowd. Got, he, he, yeah, yeah, he got really scorted out, didn't he? <laughs> Farting loudly three or three or four times. I think it was each time the player went down to play the shot. Got <laughs> <laughs> back up again. Uh, sorry, and he go back down for the shot again. Just it, as he's it, about to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> If he'd been a bit smarter, so he could have used that to win a million pounds in a quiz. Yeah. <laughs> Long and crisp for yes. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Short and sharp for A. <laughs> Morse code. <laughs> this is why you need Le Petit Man, whatever his name was. He could do impersonations with his farts. Oh, yes. The yeah, famous yeah. French flatulist. That's a lot of Fs. Yeah, there's a lot of Fs, there's a lot of farts. <laughs> he could just tell you. He could just fart the answer. <laughs> oh, marvellous. Bosworth. <laughs> that's Ooh, that's a lot of letters. Crowd. That's a lot of letters to... <laughs> to, to pronounce with your colon. Um, yeah. You'd have had to have eaten a lot of cauliflower. <laughs> um, so another snooker tip, Tom, but I think we can, uh, we can apply it to any one-on-one match is that if an opponent is about to take a shot, it is considered very bad sportsmanship and bad gamesmanship to fidget and whistle. (laughs) But it's very good gamesmanship, Tom, to distract the player by loudly requesting silence from spectators, (laughs) even if they're not making any noise. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Quote, simulate annoyance on the opponent's behalf with the onlookers. This is what it's about. It's about pretending to be friends with your rival while simultaneously undermining them at every give every possible opportunity. Excuse me, would you stop would you stop farting back there? <laughs> Who did that? Someone else did one. This man's trying to play. <laughs> Excuse me, Vicar, would you mind? In terms of distracting the opponent rather than just breaking their play, Potter had the following advice when playing specifically poker. <laughs> I just love I just love this quote. There are those who believe that the sole duty of the poker gamesman is to build up his reputation for impenetrability and toughness by suggesting that he last played poker by the light of a moon made more brilliant by the snows of the Yukon, that his opponents were two white slave traffickers, a ticket of leave man, and a deserter from the Foreign Legion. To me, this is ridiculously far-fetched, but I do believe that a trace of an American accent, West Coast specifically, casts a small shadow of apprehension over the minds of English players. (laughs) So basically, put off your opponent by pretending to be an American. (laughs) Or likewise, if if you're an American, pretend to be English. Put on a bad English accent. (laughs) Yes. Step in time. This is a lovely game of cards, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. I'll raise you one Queen Elizabeth the First. <laughs> I think I've got a royal flush. God bless her. God bless her. God, God bless, bless her. her soul. <laughs> I'm from London, England. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Could you spare me three bob? 
I appear to be a little low on me cards. I'm standing on the pavement waiting to get a taxi. <laughs> to a game of soccer between Tottenham Hotspurs Wolverines <laughs> <laughs> and Chelsea Marmosets. <laughs> and then I'll have a pint of your most flavourless beer. <laughs> Actually, I'll have one of your normal beers, but only half a pint. The rest can be piss. <laughs> Straight from the toilet, please. Oh, excuse me. Allow me to double the cost of that to pay for the employee's wages. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise as an Englishman I was paying them to work here. <laughs> I was under the misapprehension, Governor, that was the responsibility of the person who ran the fucking bar. We have a very strange system in England where the prices you put on the menu are the prices you pay. Yes. Very peculiar. Yes, and you only tip the bar staff if you want to fuck them. Paul <laughs> <laughs> Dick Van Dyke turns slowly into a character from The Young Ones. It, it does, yes. It turns very slowly into Rick Mayle. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie. Eddie, step, step in time, Eddie, you bastard. <laughs> Bong. <laughs> Mary Poppins was a bitch. <laughs> I'll take that umbrella and shove it up your ass. <laughs> oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> I forgot what that character was called. Uh, yes. Anyway. Anyway. So, um, in ten... <laughs> By way of distraction as well, in tennis he likes to make a great show of admiring the plants and birds song whilst playing, making him seem both distracted and lowering his opponent's guard. In reality, Tom, he just wasn't very good at tennis. <laughs> and this was the only way to give himself a chance of winning. Same with Greg Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he also particularly liked a, a double bluff of asking an opponent for advice against an imaginary but much stronger opponent who's due to face the next day. To make it look like he was losing because he was just distracted or having an off day. <laughs> and also in the hope that his opponent would then give him useful advice that he could actually use against said opponent. How many of the people that bought this were lawyers, do you think, this book? <laughs> Almost all. <laughs> so yes, it would make it look like he was just having an off day, but usually played at a much higher standard. This had the double result of both building up his reputation as a good player whilst excusing his total lack of actual ability. <laughs> Quote, In our small chess community in Marleybone, it would be a mock modesty on my part to deny that I have built up for myself a considerable name without having ever actually won a single game. <laughs> Even the best players are sometimes beaten, and that is precisely what always happens to me. <laughs> Which I quite like. He's <laughs> just a useless player. <laughs> Have you ever done that sound where you've gone out... Pretending he's brilliant. You've, got, you've gone out with some people, you may be playing a game of pool or darts, and, um, you, you know, you play pool, you pot the first three, and then you sort of, you realise you're on a roll and you wouldn't normally, wouldn't normally pot three in a row like that, and you just put the cue down and you just go, I tell you what, guys, I'm just going to let you play because I, I play quite a lot. And, um, you know, I don't want to intimidate you. <laughs> and I'm just going to win every game. So that's, that's me done for tonight. I'll just watch the rest. So another piece of Potter's uh, Potter's advice in Gamesmanship, the book, is uh, to offer friendly but useless advice <laughs> designed to make your rival overthink or move, a move or a shot. Specifically, tell them to take their time and not to overthink said upcoming <laughs> shot. 
nothing will stress you more than someone telling you to fucking relax. It's, it's absolutely right. In any life situation. Don't panic. All you hear is panic. Exactly. <laughs> the more useful you can make the advice sound, the better. Uh, for example, stop reaching for the ball. Just relax <laughs> is a classic example, <laughs> which works for many, many, many sports. Um, at all times, Tom, though, you have to make your opponent think you are helping them and that you value their help in return. <laughs> in the end, actually, uh, since this book has been written, many, many, many sports and games and professional federations I've alluded to have actually banned <laughs> this kind, this specifically this kind of deliberate fluffing or giving unhelpful yet friendly advice. Deliberate fluffing. <laughs> now, that would really put off your opponent. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, don't, don't 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 mind this porn star over here. It's going to stop blowing the momentarily whilst you make the move. No, no, I'm paying I'm paying attention. Don't mind me. Sorry, I'm paying attention. Don't mind me. You take your shot. Sorry. Oh, no, it looks like it's my turn. It looks like I'll be taking the shot. Very nice. Sorry, Stephen, mind if I just pop your cue between your buttocks for a moment? <laughs> 180. You probably are right. I think I do have to turn around. Excuse me for a moment, Stephen. I just have to pocket a couple of balls. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. New balls, please. Hey! hey. Expands going at some point. <laughs> Quite. That's what he, sh- that's what he said. <laughs> so, so in many sports, it's actually uh, giving... Deliberately unhelpful, friendly advice has actually been banned <laughs> uh, because it ended up requiring, it ended up ruining the game because everyone was trying to play off against one another and no one actually took any of the matches seriously. <laughs> so <laughs> busy dancing in front of each other's shots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> telling each other not to panic. But Tom, there was a fatal flaw in gamesmanship. It simply doesn't work, Tom, against people who are just playing because they actually quite like the game. <laughs> A so-called pure player. Quote from the book. He gets down to it. He gets on with it. He plays each shot according to its merits and to his own powers, without a trace of exhibitionism and no byplay whatever. We amateurs have to fight against the growing menace of young people who insist on playing their various games for the fun of the thing, (laughs) indulging rather too freely, if the truth were known, in pure play and enjoyment. (laughs) So there you go. The one counter to uh, sportsman bastards is to just enjoy yourself. Uh, Potter went on to write several other books, including Notes on Lifemanship, uh, which included a section on flirtation called Woomanship, and and, uh, included at one point the advice to annoy and disarm snooty people in conversation by just being as vulgar as possible to them. (laughs) He specifically proposes... Announcing that you like going to strip clubs. <laughs> oh well, that that's a ta- isn't there Frost Nixon? To be fair, very disarming. Is it? Well, yeah. Start the Frost, Frost Nixon interview. Didn't um, Richard Nixon say something really offensive to Frost just as they're about to go on there to try? Exactly and, it. Yeah. It's and it's from the book. These books were written as satire, but it works really just well. Dirty tricks. <laughs> yeah. It's just dirty tricks. And it's absolutely, yeah, if you're, you're, if you're meeting someone who is in a position of power over you, ironically, a brilliant way of lowering them to below your social status to is to... Down. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, down in a way, <laughs> in a way, it's to be as inappropriate as possible in front of them because it completely ruins the power dynamic. 
It shows that you're not scared of them. It shows you're not scared of them when you're bent over wanking in their office. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> They're going to give you that job. <laughs> nothing will. Yeah, nothing. Nothing that will sway a judge. Get signed. <laughs> <laughs> nothing will sway a judge of your innocence more easily. <laughs> this week in Dragon's Den, Barry from Croydon decided to take a shit on Duncan Ballantyne's lap. <laughs> I'm going to make you an offer. <laughs> well, that's very... That's out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you everything you're asking for. <laughs> well, that, that's also a trick Darren Brown uses, doesn't he? So, and, and I supposedly it works in confrontational situations or, um, yeah, if you're, if you're being attacked or something or being intimidated by someone, if you completely throw them with something random, they just, you know, you just get that moment where you can actually escape the situation because they're just baffled by your reference to Gary the Hedgehog. Yeah, but I think, like, esotericism, being a bit eccentric, can only get you so far, but being being really rude is something that everyone recognises. It's (laughs) not just weird, it's something that you'll kind of understand... And be be completely thrown by. Yeah, wonderful. Um, it should also be noted, Tom, that until his death in 1969, Potter, although these books were a joke, absolutely lived by his own rules that he wrote down <laughs> in these works, and was apparently utterly infuriating to be around because of it. Did he go to private Constantly school by play- any chance? Uh, he did, Tom. Yes, he was. He was an officer just after World War One in the army and uh, privately educated. Yeah. Years, but he would apparently constantly play little mind games on his friends and acquaintances. <laughs> You'd never know where you were with him, but he'd always get exactly what he wanted out of you, the little bastard. And everyone knew it, and they couldn't do anything about it because he was so disarmingly charming and polite and friendly. <laughs> Until he started taking a dump on your lap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, expected that, were you? Hey. Until the waiter in the ivy brought the wine over. Asked if he'd like to taste it, and he just shat in the bottle and said, "Yes, it's good. Would you like a glass?" <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, nowhere near as extreme, but he did have a bizarre habit when he went into a restaurant and the waiter would ask him to if he wanted to taste the wine. He would ask the waiter for the cork, and he would sniff the cork and then throw it away. Just literally throw it across the restaurant. Uh, apparently, apparently, according to him, it always gave the waiters an ulcer. Because they'd absolutely panic that this was someone who absolutely knew what he was doing. So you'd be guaranteed free drinks or better food. They'd tell the chef you'd get the absolute pinnacle quality. Oh, you sniff the cork and throw it? You sniff the cork. Rather than taste the wine, see if it's corked, you sniff the cork and you just throw it away dismissively. Oh, I see. And it would cause the staff to have an absolute shit fit. You're doing it with such confidence. It would also absolutely convince your guests that you knew the menu, you knew the wine menu, and you were the person to be trusted with the order. And actually, he admitted freely afterwards that he didn't know a good wine from a bad wine, couldn't tell if it was corked. It was just his way of establishing dominance. What a twat. <laughs> exactly. How fucking annoying would it be to be his friend, Tom? Anyway, there we go, Tom. <laughs> his gamesmanship. The uh, the book that's ruined it for everyone. <laughs> Jolly good show. Well, thank you very much for that, Sam. I did enjoy that. Very silly. It was a nice ying to my yang. Right, should we think of some topics for next week? Oh, I say we better. In a vague attempt to round this up. Um, incidentally, if you want to hear next week's episode, whatever that's about to be, then you can join the Order of the Bath. You get uh, you get an exclusive episode every other week. You get songs, you get medals. What more could you want? Patreon.com slash that was genius. Have we done alcohol before? I, I, oh, I reckon we might have done, but let's do it again. Let's do, boo- let's do booze. Let's do alcohol for the patrons next week. Yep. 
And then what's on the list of public suggestions? A lot. We've got Hobo's Patois, Primitive Medicine, Funniest Badassery, Rivalries, screw that off, Glass, that's a bit, rare, a bit weird. Hmm. Glass, should we do Glass? Uh, okay, yeah, why not? Let's do glass. glass. Let's do glass. Okay, alcohol for the patrons, stored in glass for the public. Yeah. So if you if you do want to join us and hear that episode all about alcohol, then you can. It's patreon.com slash thatwasgenius. And uh, if you don't, then we'll see you in two weeks for an episode all about glass. If you have a suggestion for us, for a topic you uh, think we should explore, then uh, do pop us an email, thatwasgeniuscast at gmail.com, or you can go to thatwasgeniuspodcast.com and fill in the form. Or get in touch with us on social media to search for that was genius. Oh, I'm excited about those two. Should be good. Excellent, yeah. I think they're going to be fun. Fantastic. Right, Tom, say goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, audience. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed. <laughs>